Welcome to Provisional Aspirations, a podcast exploring the psychology of religion, philosophy, and clinical mental health. I'm Jeffrey Wallace, author, religious trauma survivor, and graduate student pursuing a master's degree in counseling psychology. Join me as I indulge my academic interest in the human spiritual experience, a curiosity that I couldn't fully explore as a member of a high demand religious group. But now I'm learning out loud and it feels great. For several months now, I've been collaborating with the folks over at I Got Out. IGotOut.org is a website and hashtag movement for survivors of high control groups. Their mission is based on the premise that telling stories of coercive abuse has healing potential for individuals coming out of cult-like groups. So they provide an opportunity for fellow survivors to publish their story by way of their website and through social media, and also to connect with and support each other. In January, I Got Out's topic of the month was spiritual abuse. They define it this way, attempting to exert power or control over somebody using religion, faith, or beliefs. This is, of course, a topic close to my heart based on my experience with religious trauma. And if you are a fellow survivor and you haven't already, go connect with I Got Out online. Send them your story. They'll publish it on their Instagram page. And you'll also see some good resources on their website from leading experts in the field. To help me understand a bit more about spiritual abuse from the perspective of counseling psychology, I was able to speak recently with licensed independent clinical social worker Kayla Felton. Kayla has her master's in social work and specializes in religious trauma and spiritual abuse. And of particular interest to me, Kayla focuses on psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. As she puts it, and I quote, to support those in the process of reclaiming inner peace, relational harmony, autonomy, pleasure, and identity, end quote. We connected recently through Instagram, and I'm happy that Kayla was willing to record a conversation with me for provisional aspirations. Let's listen in on the conversation with Kayla Felton. Okay, so let's just jump right in and let me ask you, how would you define spiritual abuse? Well, certainly a big focus of my work is really building language together with people, um, just acknowledging that spiritual abuse is something that I'm sure different people hear that and they have different kind of visualizations, expressions of what that probably looks like, feels like, sounds like. So a couple of years back when I first started holding some underground space for spiritual abuse survivors to gather, um, I kind of co-created this definition with survivors. And I just wanted to make sure that everyone in the room, all folks being kind of harmed in very different contexts and cultures and communities and relationships, I wanted to make sure that everyone felt represented by this definition. Hence, it's a little wordy, a little long. Yeah, we can handle it. Go for it. Spiritual abuse is the conscious or unconscious use of power to direct, control, or manipulate another's body, thoughts, emotions, actions, capacity for choice, freedom, or autonomy of self. This can happen within a spiritual or religious context. And I would argue it can actually happen within any relationship where there is a power dynamic, which is arguably every relationship we're in. That's right. Even with strangers, we're in a power dynamic, <laughs> you know. Great. Thanks for that. And so how did you get started in this work? What influenced you to become an advocate for spiritual abuse survivors? 
Well, for quite some time already, my focus has been religious trauma. And so a few years back, I was asked to hold that space for spiritual abuse survivors who were being harmed in plant medicine and yogi contexts, um, which was really supportive in helping to expand my perspective where spiritual abuse is by no means limited to religious cultures and communities. It can happen in many cultures, many communities, many relationships. And so I started holding that space. And now I currently work as a um, psychedelic therapist. So it's been a really beautiful invitation to kind of integrate my different passions, my different experiences in advocating for folks to have autonomous spiritual activation, autonomous healing also within a therapeutic container, within a psychedelic intervention. That's great. And so you talked a little bit about this earlier, about how these sort of power dynamics, and we were chatting earlier about how power dynamics between individuals at an interpersonal level sort of run along different dimensions and happen in every interaction. So what can you say about how spiritual abuse shows up either in religious contexts and also non-religious contexts? Well, I think a big piece in the definition is that it can be conscious or unconscious. And that's where I think it's so insidious, but so like confusing, bewildering, I should say, for survivors often is that it may be weeks, months, years, a lifetime. It might never happen that people actualize and recognize, wow, I was being exploited or manipulated or influenced beyond my consent for what I was doing with my body, my money, my relationships, my spirituality, et cetera. And so um, I think that a way that this often shows up is that people are feeling, they're feeling pressure. They're feeling obligation to another human being for how they're showing up in their existence, how they relate to basically like allegiance to another person, right? So sometimes that's asked for, sometimes that's expected. I think we can see that in a lot of like hierarchical communities, often religious communities, right? There's like a hierarchy of this is the leader, this is the pastor, this is the clergy, this is the person who holds the authority on Mm -hmm. another person's life. Mm -hmm. And it does get, I think, a little bit even trickier to kind of sift through and recognize when we're not even talking about like formal cultures, communities, hierarchical power structures, when we're talking about just like a friend or someone that doesn't have maybe the same like title of authority, but they still hold this presence of power in a person's life. So a lot of that can happen unconsciously on one or all parties, where also the person who has manipulated or influenced may not even be aware that that's what happened. Right. That's right. That's right. So there's a nuance here that we're holding that I hold a lot of nuance space for survivors in honoring what happened to you happened to you. And whether or not someone like meant to hurt you or not, I put that in quotations, meant to hurt you, it doesn't change a damn thing about the consequences that Mm. you are living out in your life. Good. Yeah, I feel that. Well said. So what are some common emotions and sensations that survivors may navigate as a result of spiritual abuse? I find that it is really difficult to trust people. I talk a lot about, um, I mean, people who have survived a long-term exposure to an abusive relationship or a toxic narrative, aka indoctrination. A lot of times people are navigating what's called CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress. And so I just want to geek out a little bit about CPTSD because it's been really supportive and helping my clients kind of conceptualize that we're not here to pathologize their trauma. We're not here to pathologize their experience, 
But complex trauma is something that we experience when we've had a long-term exposure to something. It's not just like a singular event that I was in a bad car accident and I have trauma from that day. It's a, well, I grew up believing that I was inherently wicked. Hmm. That's a long-term exposure to kind of a fucked up thought. That's going to have some later, some consequences across a lifetime. If I'm not able to kind of weed that narrative out, that doesn't belong to me. That doesn't inform my reality. And so for a lot of survivors of spiritual abuse, we're talking about severe complex trauma. If they've had a long-term exposure to this abusive dynamic where they've received so many narratives about their value, about the validity of their feelings, the validity of their perception of their own lived experience, the ownership over their own narrative. And so for a lot of folks that I hold space for, it's really hard to trust people. And it's sometimes really hard to, um, well, it's, it's very common to get triggered in relational contexts if your abuse or your indoctrination occurred in a relational context, which I also think is often the case when we're talking about abuse within, well, amongst people, it's always within a relationship. So I find that sometimes for survivors of, of abuse, it's really hard to make attachments. It's really hard to build trust. And it's really hard to um, feel secure in relationship moving forward. Yeah. And I've noticed that uh, this sort of common swing when uh, you're released from a manipulative spiritual environment, uh, cult survivors, uh, ex-members of high demand religious groups, is there tends to be a hypersensitivity to you know any sort of spiritual manipulation that comes as a result of that. It's the superpower that comes as a result of our spiritual trauma, perhaps. But yeah, building trust is going to be the next step, of course. So let's see. The next question I have was emotions and sensations. Actually, this we didn't plan about this, but maybe I could just ask anyway. In sort of real time, learning how to identify what those what that spiritual abuse feels like. Uh, is that part of part of what you do? Or is that something that um, clients learn sort of, sort of on their own time? Yeah. Well, certainly, I I do believe that the body keeps the score of trauma and grief. <laughs> and I also believe that um, the narratives that we receive, that we internalize, they're sitting, you know, in our somatics and our somatic expressions. And so I definitely do try to bring awareness to where might you be holding this. And it might ha- be happening like physiologically, you might be holding it literally in your body somewhere. You also might sometimes like the way that we, where we find our triggers to show up, that's also some insight as to where have you stored this? You might've stored it relationally, right? Where it's very hard. I get very triggered when I'm in a conversation with a man who raises his voice. He may not be yelling at me. It may not even be coming from an aggressive place. It's just for me, that's where my body has kept the score of patriarchy trauma, right? That I get really like activated. My nervous system gets really activated. I feel like it's very hard for me to tune into a sense of safety around men. Sometimes it's even just men with really loud voices. They're not even raising their voice, right? (laughs) And I can be like, whoa, this is not that this person is doing anything wrong. It's that it's hard for me to remain like regulated in my body because, and but that gives me so much guidance, so much insight as to Where does my trauma deserve to be honored and held and processed and acknowledged so that I can commune with my inner child, with my nervous system, with my inner healing intelligence when I am feeling activated and say, I know you're here to keep me safe. I know I'm not going to gaslight the reasons why I'm feeling activated. I'm not being, you know, judgmental. I'm not being, you know, (laughs) 
angry, I'm being activated. And so then I can be like, I'm going to take a look around and see if I'm safe. And I'm going to also like select my proximity and I'm going to make sure that I always have an exit strategy. That's just like my personal boundary, you know, is I don't go places where I don't have a way to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I'm sure your clients appreciate that too. And um, what are some questions one might ask themselves to take inventory of their sense of safety in relationship to spiritual leaders or emotional holders? Yeah, well, I actually created um, with my colleague, Sophia, who's actually the woman who initially asked me to hold that underground space for survivors. Um, We created a little tool, which you can find on the Reclamation Collective social media. It's just called a spiritual power inventory. And I do encourage survivors to go through this. This is part of our, we have a spiritual abuse support group curriculum, discussion-based curriculum at the Reclamation Collective. And also when I do spiritual power inventory work for spiritual and faith leaders, this is the tool that I come back to, which is asking essentially five questions. Number one, who do you trust? Number two, if any of those individuals were to interact with you in a way that felt violating, manipulative, or abusive, would there be a way to get out of that relationship? That kind of is where we're like, are any of your basic needs intertwined with your proximity to this person or to this community, right? And we can think of a lot of cultures, a lot of communities, a lot of communes, a lot of cults, right? Where your basic needs, your access to housing, your access to employment, if you're in ministry, your access to your entire social emotional network, if you were born and raised within a community that you're still a part of, it might actually find that you can't really get out of that relationship and still have access to your basic needs. So in that sense, you're stuck. The third question Is there a system of accountability in place to report hypothetical abuse of trust or power in the relationship? And this is a piece, too, where it doesn't mean that it's it's wrong, that there's not systems of accountability or systems of policing in all realms. But I do think that we have to acknowledge when, okay, is there anyone I can report this person to? Should they harm me? So, for example, in the therapeutic relationship, assuming that you're meeting with a licensed professional, they should have a licensing board that they are held accountable to. So if someone in that clinical role, in that therapeutic role, were to sexually assault or harass or try to create a, an additional unprofessional relationship outside of that therapeutic container, they could be reported to the board saying, this person should not have unchecked access to vulnerable people. That's not, that's not safe. And less honored in like, for sure, religious cultures, there's not really a system of accountability, right? And there are some, you may be able to speak to this, there are some that have like their own kind of, they seek to have their own kind of policing board, accountability board. And um, unfortunately, I've held space for a number of survivors who were further silenced, further and publicly shamed and shunned from community when they did come forward and say, this person has abused me. And then they had to speak to that person in front of a whole bunch of old white men. And I'm talking about oftentimes like young girls, teenagers, 15 and under, you know, having to go and report their abuse. So certainly, even if there is a system of accountability, I'm putting that in quotes, it's certainly not across the board, right? These are not connected in communication systems of accountability. So there's really no way to say what if someone's coming from a religious community that there's really any system of accountability in place should they harm 
in their power. Because yeah. there's also not a clear code of ethics. We don't always know what to expect of a spiritual or faith leader. Where does their supportive role begin and end? That's right. Yeah. Uh, those things need to be systematized. It's very difficult when all individuals hold to the same theology, right? It re- there really does need to be this division and uh, between church and state within the church itself almost, if that's going to protect individuals involved. The fourth one is, do you have the opportunity or safety to set boundaries with this person? And this is the piece too, where like, if you don't feel safe, you don't feel confident to set boundaries with someone. Again, that's for you to take inventory of. Is this a person that I really want to be vulnerable with? I really want to be investing a lot of emotional labor into this relationship if I don't even feel safe to set boundaries with this person. Again, it may not be that this person has said, you can't set boundaries with me, but let's honor that power dynamic that if it's hard for you to set boundaries with men, for example, just putting out that example, right? Yeah. I might have to take consideration whether or not I need to be in therapeutic care by a man if it's hard for me to set boundaries. That doesn't mean that it's wrong for that person to be holding that space or that they're not receptive to hearing a boundary. But that's where I also need to consider my sense of safety, my sense of confidence, my, my skills and self-advocacy. Can I show up to a safe relationship with someone with a power dynamic over me? And then the last question has this person communicated where their supportive role begins and ends? So I wanted to get a little bit into psychedelics uh, because a very useful tool, I think, for spiritual abuse. But let's just, let me ask you, are you concerned at all about the potential for spiritual abuse in this context of psychedelics? And how does that manifest itself? How do we protect ourselves from it? I'm deeply concerned about what we already know has been abuse in including therapeutic contexts. This last year, I've been following quite a bit. There's been a few articles published um, specifically by survivors who have been harmed in um, plant medicine, but also like psychedelic therapeutic spaces. And so we already know that that is kind of a foundation that brings us into 2021, 2022 now, where we're able to do psychedelic intervention in clinical spaces. I really think that this is a different type of therapeutic container than most therapeutic relationships. And so I do feel a sense of urgency to really show up in conversations with psychedelic therapists and psychedelic advocates in general to really raise consciousness on the power, the privilege, the potential for harm. If it's not really clear, where does your supportive role begin and end? Because this does, for some of these medicines, I mean, people are really going into other dimensions. It's interdimensional travel, right? It's interdimensional (laughs) kind of um, exploration and expansion of consciousness. And what a very vulnerable and and by default intimate Mm -hmm. journey we're taking with clients when we're going into the unknown. When I go into the treatment room with my clients, I'm not actively in relationship with that medicine, my client is, but we are still both entering the unknown. I have no idea what's going to come to visualization to sensation for my client, but I just have to be reliable to hold that space, to hold the co-created therapeutic container to hopefully help my clients remain secure and grounded in. We can handle anything that comes up, anything that comes to consciousness, anything that comes to awareness we're going to hold it. We're going to honor it. We're going to explore it together. And the practitioner really needs to be uh, well-versed in spiritual abuse and, and in uh, you know, the ethical boundaries so that when they enter in, 
they can be supportive, right? You know, and, and a lot of that can be agreed upon ahead of time with, with psychedelics, right? And informed consent, right? Like having really clear informed consent. This is how I'm, I, this is what I can put on the table for if you're wanting some supportive touch, if you're wanting me to hold your hand, if you're wanting me to do some somatic touch, I do offer my clients some somatic touch throughout their ketamine transcendence. But I'm very clear, like, I will touch you from shoulders down to fingers and I get a verbal consent the day of in addition to, I mean, a session prior, right? Where I'm like, while we still exist and we both exist in this dimension of reality, let me ask you this. <laughs> and then I'll ask you again as you're posturing to receive medicine and at any point throughout your transcendence, something doesn't feel right. Just say stop and I will stop. It's not personal. I won't be upset. I don't approach medicine as if I have the best way to do this. <laughs> you know, I try to avoid inviting fundamentalism into my relationship with medicine and into my therapeutic relationships as well. Well, this is great work. Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how people get, get in touch with you, follow you, connect with Reclamation Collective, uh, and what kind of, you know, maybe services that might be interesting to people. Well, my clinical work with psychedelic medicine is happening at the Institute for Integrative Therapies in St. Paul. We are a um, psychedelic therapy and advocacy institute, and we are about a year and a half old. So we're just kind of launching into reality. And then with the Reclamation Collective, um, our focus has always been on non-clinical interventions. So again, that's our strategy to try to make everything that we offer at the Reclamation Collective accessible to people across state and country lines. Um, and also where we're really seeking to not invite pathology, pathologization into our relationships with survivors. I'm not saying that's automatically wrong or problematic, but I do think that there are some people who would prefer a non-clinical intervention for their trauma extraction, resolution, recovery, you know. And so we're actually going to be in March alongside our season of support groups for survivors. We have deconstruction support groups. We have um, support groups for spiritual abuse survivors. Um, but we also are going to be offering integration circles, which are going to be run the same way that we run support groups in terms of timeline. So it'll be 10 weeks, two hours each, but the integration circles are going to be facilitated specifically by psychedelic therapists. And it's going to be a 10-week journey of curating relationship to medicine, really talking about what it means to set up your own set and setting and to approach medicine with relationship, with intentionality, and obviously with safety in mind. And so this is these are going to be specifically for trauma survivors. It's not going to be specific to religious trauma or spiritual abuse survivors, but these are going to be opportunities for trauma survivors to basically consult with peers, kind of build some community around what could be a relationship with medicine. And we're hopeful that this will also help to support folks across the country who maybe won't have access to a psychedelic therapy clinic, but perhaps if they have ac access to a ketamine infusion clinic, or for example, if they have access by other means of access that people have used for across time, if they have access in the underground, if they have access to psilocybin or medicines that aren't yet being used in clinical spaces, we want to honor that those folks also deserve to have a safe space to process and be intentional about their relationship to medicine. Yeah, well, this is great. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing. It sounds like you got some really exciting stuff going on over there. And um, I'll make sure to put all of the information about what you do in the show notes, you know, so listeners can 
find you and connect with you afterwards. Thanks so much for being on with us today. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Kayla, for agreeing to be on the show. If you'd like to connect with Kayla, just search for Reclamation Collective on Instagram. And I'll also include all of her links in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Provisional Aspirations. Don't forget to subscribe and hit that share button, and I'll see you next time.